Hi, welcome back to Craft Truck. Uh, my name is Jesse Eichmann, and you are listening to the Craft Truck Podcast. Uh, this episode is a business of film uh, podcast with Amot Sakai uh, from Echo Lake Management. Amot shares some really cool insights, especially for first-time filmmakers. Uh, remember to check back with us regularly as we have uh, podcasts with cinematographers and editors and directors and uh, producers. Uh, visit our site at crafttruck.com and uh, enjoy this podcast. It's a fun one. Yes, sir. All right. So, uh, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> My name is Amot Sakai. I am the father of three children, a six-year-old, a four-year-old, and a seven-month-old. And I am a very tired man. And what I do to relax is I work at Echo Lake Entertainment which is a production financing and management company. And we've been around for 14 years. We represent writers, directors, actors. We produce films and we finance films and we're doing television as well. That's a whole lot of stuff. Yes, sir. And you, um, Amos, are on, you run up the financing, the production, and the management side. So you are on what side, or all, are you on all three sides? I'm, my business card reads that I'm on the management side, but we're a small company still, so I do a variety of, of everything. So I act as a manager representing writers and directors, but sometimes I consult with the production and financing side, and um, uh, we all do almost everything together. So... So tell me what just just to get a typical day in the life of 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 a manager. Mm-hmm. What, what what is what does your day look like? Well, I wake up all through the night. I'm woken up by my kids, and then at five o'clock is when I can't go back to sleep. I can see this is going to be a run. <laughs> it is. It is. And I about five o'clock I start doing emails mainly to stop all the backlog of emails that come through my foreign clients and then from 6.30 you want this amount of detail? I'm not curious actually so from 6.30 to 7.30 is World War 3 it's getting the 6 year old who's in first grade (laughs) because I drive her to school to get her ready for school so that it seems like an easy task it is not and then I I that's probably harder than your day job right? it is harder than my day job when I, I'm actually very happy on Monday mornings to come to the office. I'm ecstatic. And No, no, I should say, because this is being recorded, it's the best thing I ever did. And the hardest thing I ever did. <laughs> so from 8 o'clock, I'm in the office reading scripts, calling clients, calling buyers, and trying to help my clients' careers go forward. A lot of times people would think, oh, the manager just does the hand-holding and the agent does the booking of the assignments. But in the reality today, we operate just like an agent. We book clients, we negotiate deals, we find the jobs, and we do the hand-holding, and we do the development. Isn't part of that like illegal or something? Uh, It's not illegal. What a lot of people, or at least this is my understanding, if... At some point, a client who's repped in an agency says to the agency, I'm not, I'm not going to pay you a commission. The agency can take them to court, and the agency will win because there's an obvious deal. There's a talent, uh, talent agent act that's sanctioned by the state of California. And so you, you don't usually have clients saying, I'm not going to pay my agent commission. 
with managers because we're not sanctioned under that act. If a client says to us, we're not, uh, we're not paying commission, we have to take them to court. And then sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. So it's not that it's illegal. It's just that if a client at some point says that I want to pay my manager, there's no rules protecting the manager. There's no laws protecting the manager. So that's why it's, uh, I mean, anyone can do it. It's just you want to be able to get paid. So you're in in the morning, you're reading scripts, you're making calls, you're, let's just talk about the, the So what the, I do is the, the one, script reading. Oh, yeah, sorry, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, in terms, of, in terms of script reading, what I mainly do is read drafts that come in from our clients who are doing spec, uh, they're doing spec work meaning they're not getting paid for it. They're, they have the hope of either setting up a TV show based on it or setting up a feature film based on it. And what a manager's job, or at least my job, is to help them develop it to the next level. How many scripts will you get through in a day? If I can get to three or... No, I should say, if I can get to three scripts, that's pretty good. Really? So you, every day you, you will you'll commit, I try. You commit I try. to try and get maybe two, two features in a, in a TV show, yeah. maybe two TV shows in a feature or something it's like that. It's a lot of reading every day. Yeah, it's a lot of reading. I mean, that's our job. Yeah. That's, that's when I find people in our job complaining that they don't like to read. I'm like, well, go do, make widgets or something. But this is, this is not, this is the job, at least on the literary side, where you, even on, if you represent actors, you still have to read the scripts. So. Now, I happen to be sitting in the office of Amot Sakai who has a standing I should, I, should, I should note for the record it's a standing computer which I'm, I'm very impressed with because you have amazing posture so I, I highly recommend Thank you. I highly recommend the standing computer for, for one but you've got this you know just, just because I saw it on your screen when we came in this, this fancy tracking system on your computer oh well I'll give a shout out because it's a great system we just acquired a system called Industry Edge and I think the website is theindustryedge.com, and it allows us to have a phone sheet um, and software to track all the material we send out. What's great about the software is that if somebody calls me, I can put up their name and find out all the stuff that I submitted, all the bad things the person did, all the good things the person did, and I can keep a log of what I talked to the person about. And that's helpful with the clients and it's helpful with the buyers. So I always know what the buyers want because every time I talk to them and say, what do you guys want, I can input that into the system and uh, it helps our lives get organized. So how active are you in, you have a script which you like, which you think is sellable, how active are you in getting that material for your clients, packaged, sold, I mean how integral do you That's find? That's my job. That's that my job. job. So I would call the way... The way I do, the way I send it out is if the script is a commercial script, meaning that it's something that could be released on 3,000 screens, then what I do is I send it to the studios and hope that the studios buy it. If the studios don't buy it, then I send it to the mini-majors. And if the mini-majors don't buy it, I have something called Miners, which are big companies that have a lot of money. And if those don't buy it, then I send it out to independent producers in the hope that it will be made as an independent film. Now, one has to remember that ever since the last writer's strike, there really has not been a spec market. And there was a great uh, Vanity Fair article. So if, if you Google Vanity Fair spec script, it's a wonderful article of how in the 1980s and 90s you could write a script and sell it on the market for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that is very, very rare today. So you're saying that you don't get paid unless it gets made? 
yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, what we're trying to do now is to package a script instead of just sending it out to try to package it with a writer. Oh, it's not 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 a writer. With a star or with a director. And then send it to buyers. Do you represent stars here also, or no? Just just we, the... um, we. I have two colleagues who represent Dakota Fanning and Elle Fanning, and we consider them bankable stars. Who, if they are involved in a project, they um, they add a lot of value to it. Right. So, walk me through. I mean, I don't know how in detail you can or are willing to get in terms of a, a, a project you were successful packaging and putting together, but I, I'd be very curious to hear, you know, uh, a, a war story. Do you have any that oh, you can tell? Uh, a great war story is The Joneses. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So The Joneses was a script that was sent to us by ICM. And I like, by the way, I like The Joneses very much. I thought mm-hmm. that, I mean, a phenomenal cast and a good concept. Uh, and, uh, sorry, please continue, yeah. So we got The Joneses from ICM, which is now known as ICM Partners. And they sent us the script, and it had a bunch of actors attached to it with a first-time director named Derek Bort, who's now a client of ours as well. And we put together the movie, including the financing from our fund, and we found a sales agent, uh, which is Film Nation, and we now have an overall deal with Film Nation. In my opinion, Glenn Basner, who's the head of Film Nation, is the best sales agent in the world currently. He came from Focus Features, and he worked at the Weinstein Company. And we made the movie starring uh, David Duchovny and Debbie Moore, and we released it in North America and a variety of territories. And then we set it up as a television show at ABC, and a wonderful script was written, but ABC decided not to go to pilot. But what did happen was uh, Bravo found interest in it, and Bravo just greenlit a pilot. And so it will be one of the two... Bravo has two pilots on the scripted sites because they're known for unscripted stuff. So they're going to have two scripted pilots that are going to be shot this year. And Is that uh, happening right now? Like they're part of this 2013 pilot yes, season? Yes, in fact, if you go on Deadline.com, they just announced that our pilot, which is going to be shot in April, is going to be delayed because they want to make sure they get the right cast for it. So, so uh, that's a pretty successful story going, mm-hmm. obviously, from the feature to TV land. Mm-hmm. Going back to the feature film side, walk me through the, the, the packaging and financing of the Joneses. Was it, was it entirely sold in, 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 in foreign? Uh, is that what allowed you to, to finance it? How did that project come well, together? And did, 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 did it come to you packaged already with with the uh, with, with package with Demi? No, I think uh, you don't quote me to this. I think Tim Robbins was attached to it. I think Tim Robbins was attached in the lead instead of David Duchovny. And if I remember correctly, I think that's what. Ever since I had kids, I've lost all my brain cells. So I think he came with it, with Tim Robbins attached, and um, then he dropped off. Then we got David Duchovny. And then we got Demi Moore. And our idea was to figure out a way where product placement would pay for the whole movie. And ultimately, we did get a lot of product placement, but we were kind of surprised that the that we didn't get a lot of the financing to help make the movie. Meaning that the, the brands were willing to give you stuff for free, but they weren't willing to actually finance the film, to give you exactly. actual money. Exactly. So they gave you the cars, but not the dough. Exactly. 
Exactly. And some did, but I think it wasn't enough to ultimately make the feature. So we tapped into our own fund and um, through the fund financed the movie and shot it. And, um, uh, and then thus we were able to make the movie. So Echo Lake corporately financed the movie and then Glenn at Film Nation sold the movie. Yes, sir. Exactly. Which is an interesting question that... Um, you know, arises out of other conversations that I've had with other people in terms of the role of private equity mm-hmm. in getting projects made. I think this is an example where private equity effectively backstopped the financing of this movie, and then you were able to hand it off to a reputable sales company to exactly. uh, recoup, you, you know, the investment that was made. Mm-hmm. How important right now is it to have private equity in order to get a movie made versus... Mm-hmm. Being able to go out and sell it off of other financial means, meaning pre-sales or anything else that, that may exist, tax incentives, uh, having a, an, another company like Echo Lake, you know, in fact, I mean, mm-hmm. put up the money. I mean, how important right now is that having that private equity piece? I think it's crucial. I think it's crucial. You don't need a lot of it, but you need at least 10 to 30% of it in order to either kickstart something or in order to make it a reality. Uh, anyone who says to you, I'm going to go get distribution for my film, if you're in the studio world, that's possible. I think it's very rare nowadays to get North American distribution before a film is made. So ultimately, you either need to get pre-sales with cast that can get you pre-sales, which is very hard, by the way, too, because you have tons of projects right now with all these sales agents they're all looking for the same actors. And so it's very hard to do that. It's very hard to get North American distribution. And yes, you can get rebates, but that's only going to cover you so much for the budget. So you do need a certain amount of equity in your project to get it started. Once the project is, say, started, and talking about the packaging of a film, because you mentioned there's only so many projects out there, or rather there are only so many cast, bankable cast out there. Everybody's going after the same people to help mm-hmm. trigger their movie. What is the critical piece that allows a movie to take it's you know, that, that allows a movie to to have the the gravitas for people to take it seriously and for you to be able to actually go yeah. out there and sell a movie. Oh. That's a great question. One, you need well, ultimately you need a very experienced, reputable director. So that is very, very important. In order to get a very experienced, reputable director, you need a really, really great script. So those you need those two things critically because if you don't have a great director, none of the talent is going to take a chance on the script. And if none of the talent get it, want to do it, then you really have a problem. And if you're trying to have a first-time filmmaker... Unless they went to college or high school with a certain star, it's going to be very, very tricky to put those two together. So you really need an excellent script to get an excellent director to get a star. Otherwise, usually you see it's a first-time filmmaker, you're going to have to use equity and all of it, and, um, and no stars. If you were starting out mm-hmm. as... Uh, producer trying to get their first project off the ground, mm-hmm. what would be your recommendation to them? 
I would take a camera, I would take a video camera, I would find some good looking people that are willing to do some violence on screen and have sex on screen. And I would shoot a feature with them and then I would sell that feature. I think that's the way to do it. I would, for, my, my rule is if you're in film school, you can do shorts. If you're not in film school, there's no reason in the world for you to do shorts. They will not help you in any way. You'll spend the same amount of time and the same amount of money and the same amount of aggravation to do a feature as you would a short. And a feature will actually get you ahead. So that's what I would do. And I wouldn't slave away for seven years to do a really good script. I would just improvise, come up with a concept and shoot the concept, have the actors improvise. They'll probably do a better job than if it was scripted. And that's what I would sell. There is a ton of advice that just came out from out right now. Like I, I actually have trouble processing everything that you just said. What you just said is... It, it it's it's philosophically you know could take somebody years to just digest what you just said. <laughs> I, I can simplify it. And no, no, no I, you said it so eloquently. But I think there's. I, I just want to talk about those those pieces there because you know what you, you know. If I could sum up what you just said, you one of the pieces you mentioned was basically almost don't go to film school. Just go out and make it. Or if you are going to go to film school, sure, make it short. But the minute you get out of film school, you know, you don't even don't even bother. You know, just do not pass go. Do not collect two hundred dollars. Make make a movie. Mm-hmm. It's basically what you're saying. Pick up pick up the tools and make a movie. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. The thing about film school, I went to USC Film School to the Peter Stark Producing Program, and that even though that I had to repay loans for many many years. I think it was a valuable experience to go through. Some people are impressed when I mention it. So I think overall it did help me in the business. But yes, otherwise than that, I would say just shoot a film. I don't see anybody doing that. Really? really. No. I see people running around town trying to raise money for mediocre mediocre scripts. And I see a lot of people doing shorts that are really not going to help them. You know, we just interviewed uh, from one of our other series that we're doing... Um, through the lens, which we're having conversations with cinematographers. Mm-hmm. And one of the guys we interviewed was a guy named Brandon Troft. And he directed and wrote a movie called The FP, mm-hmm. which he made for, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars. But he basically went out and just, you know, he did it. And this is a pretty impressive guy. He's already a cinematographer. He's done some pretty amazing stuff in the business. So he has connections. But still, at the end of the day, he just went out and made this, you know, no low budget movie. Good for him. Which is, you know, uh, which is amazing, and is kind of, you know, having that kind of cult sort of traction. But but it's interesting that you say that people aren't doing that. That what you see is people don't know. Why is that? What? Why? I don't. I don't know. That's a very good question. I don't. Uh, every time somebody asks me, "Well, should I do a short or a feature?" I say feature, and they go do a short. So I don't know. Well, my kids don't listen to me either. So maybe that's the issue. <laughs> So. Well, the other question is, how come the, the directors of photography always get the actresses to fall in love with them? That's an interesting question. <laughs> are you contemplating a career change? No, no, no. Happily, happily married. <laughs> um, how involved are you once a movie is, is made? Are you, are you hands-off in your position here? Or, once, or are managers hands-off in the, the distribution and selling a movie, or do you actually get involved in, in, in the sales aspect of the films that you well, guys make? Well, 
Um, I'll give you an example. I once got a phone call while I was having lunch. It was a producer who called me and he said, there was a producer that was on set in Europe with a client of mine who was directing and he called me up and he said, Amot, your client just punched me in the nose. I'm firing him. Good luck. And he hung up. So I had to get very involved in that. But I really don't, my job is to help the client with putting together their movies or their TV shows. And once that goes, my job ends unless somebody gets into a fist fight or there's other problems. And there's usually in the first two weeks as all the type A personalities clash on a production, there's usually problems. But then it sort of eases up and, um, and that's it. So, I, I guess in, in, you are so heavily invested on the front end of making a movie that you will let the reins go to others once, once the project has sort of come to its... its yeah, well, you have to, I mean, there's, you, know, yeah. you let the line producer do their work. And... No, but you, I mean, I'm talking about after the film is, say, delivered. So not during the actual physical production side, but as, a, you know, if your client is, say, either... And you're repping what mostly writers or directors right now, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, do you, so they, they, I guess, you wouldn't really have any involvement, really, once the project is. Well, once the, if it's a producer that knows what they're doing, then I don't need to be involved. But a lot of times, it's a producer that doesn't know what they're doing, and then we have to help them find distribution, selling it overseas, finding a sales agent, things like that. So it all depends, and then it's also depending on figuring out when the client can go to what film festival for the project or how they do the marketing of the film. So Now, uh, maybe I should have started here, but you know, since we're kind of halfway through, I, I, I am curious, how did you get started in the business? I got started by going to... Well, first of all, I went to a school in upstate New York called the Rochester Institute of Technology, which was not far from Toronto. And I had the best four years of my life there. Um, and... When I finished, I went straight to USC, and um, from there at USC, at the Peter Stark Producing Program, they set you up between the first and second year, they set you up on a paid internship, uh, and to just to verify paid, it was, I think, 300 bucks a week, and I was set up at an internship at MGM, which was awesome because half of it was in the development on the development side, and half of it was on the marketing side. And I learned a lot about how they marketed films, and then I learned about how they developed films. And from there, I became a floater at MGM, and I worked on several desks, which was very interesting. And then from there, I realized that I could never get promoted off a desk that I was just a temp on. So I started looking through the UTA job list, and I found there was an advertisement for a company, and I showed up one day, and it was like a lake. And that was almost uh, 11 years ago. And I became the assistant to the head of the company, Doug Mankoff. And uh, during the first week, I rearranged all the furniture in the company, and he was actually impressed by that. And um, then he promoted me to become a creative executive. So I really was on the um, production side of the company. And I started working a lot with foreign filmmakers. Um, One of the films that we executive produced is Tsotsi, which won the uh, Best uh, Foreign Language Oscar. That was directed by Gavin Hood who, by the way, is a very nice guy and a sweetheart. So, And we, around the year 2005, we teamed up with a guy named Mike Marcus who ran MGM for many years. He was a big agent at CA for many years. 
and he started the uh, management division of our company. And at that point, I was working with so many foreign filmmakers that I jumped from the production side to the management side. So, do you like? Was it, looking back now, what were the differences from being on the production side to the management side? I mean, for everything that you described about being on the management side, it sounds like you're you're also on the production side. That's true. Well, what I even though I went to the Peter Strzok producing program. What I hated in the producing was the hurry up and wait mentality, whereas hurry up and get an offer out to an actor and then wait three months to get the response. And the other thing that I really hated was delivery. And I think real producers are producers that can deliver. It's one thing when you're actually on set hanging out with actors, but a producer that can deliver a feature film successfully is a real producer. And I didn't like those two things, and those are the two things that you need to do as a producer. And as a manager, what I really like is that I feel like I have clients who I can help support their careers, and it's a lot more hectic, and I don't know, I really, it's more exciting. It's really exciting when you take a writer who's never sold something and you suddenly sold a spec script of theirs. It's amazing when a writer suddenly gets a deal that brings them into the WGA, the Writers Guild of America, and all of a sudden they get pension and health care. And they have certain minimums now that they have to get paid. So I really like that exciting thing. And also in producing, I mean, there's only, I mean, you can produce 10, 12, 15 projects. But if you have 18 clients, each one of these clients has about 10 projects. So I like that more hectic pace. I remember I used to be a waiter. And I liked it when the restaurant was very busy. Uh, it, the time flowed by quicker. And we actually were better at our job as being a waiter. The minute it slowed down, that's when all people started making mistakes, and I didn't like that. You get more done because you've got more to do. Yes, and by the way, once I got a standing desk, I was inspired by an agent named Rich Cook at WME. I one day came in and I saw him standing, and I said, what's that? And um, ever since then, I've had a standing desk. I've made more money for my clients standing up than sitting down. That's, That's wisdom. Yeah, words to live by. Thank you, thank you. By the way, the the stand up desk that I have, I bought at IKEA. I think it costs like one hundred ninety nine dollars total. So it's literally one, two. It's quite. Three, um, I think I might have to, have to take a picture of the standing desk you and should. post it with this you podcast. Should. You I should. Will. And there's a New York Times article you should also post that says that sitting will kill you. So right next to the picture. Right next to the picture. Yeah. I'm going to post that too. Yeah, because if it's in the New York Times, it's it's, it's got to be true. true yeah. Yeah, it's got to be true. So, <laughs> so uh, how many projects are you tracking right now into in your in your world? As many as I can. I mean, there's hundreds. I mean, there's hundreds of them. As many as I can. The, the, that are all, but they're not all, all your projects. But related to your clients, or well, are you they? mean the clients, or you mean out out in the ether? Not out of the ether. Your 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 clients. Oh, my clients. I mean, each client has. I mean, each client. Out of the ether, have, I imagine there are hundreds. Yeah, thousands. hundreds. Yeah, uh, I mean, the clients. I would say on average they have about maybe about five or six. Some have a lot more. Some have a lot less. So, and I have a very colorful Excel spreadsheet that I track every single project. At what stage are we in negotiation, selling, writing, negotiating? And um, uh, and things like that. Like I give, I give, I'll give you an example without naming names. I have a client right now who we're negotiating a deal with a financier that I essentially have to carry the whole load because his agent just left the agency 
but the deal still has to be negotiated with the former agency. So the, his agent is not negotiating it, the former agency is negotiating it. And his lawyer is not negotiating it because the lawyer's partner at the same law firm also represents the financier. So at the end of the day, it's the manager, who is me, working with a business affairs guy at the old agency, trying to make this deal closed. And in fact, when we finish recording this, I'm going to check my email to see if it did close. So, And that'll be the postscript. That'll be the postscript. So yeah, so that's like one project. Right. And so what I have to do is go through... All the cl- all the projects of all the clients and every day now, are, do you do you run through them every day? Do you kind of go top to bottom all your clients every day? No, I do. My system, which is trademarks, is that once a month I go through all the accounts. I go through all the clients with all the projects, and then every week um, I go through who the priorities are. So if it's something that we're negotiating, that's a priority. If it's something that I'm developing with the client, it's lesser of a priority. If it's a client developing something with a producer, that's really low priority because that's the producer taking the reins and going through it. So, What is, in your estimation, the state of the industry today from where you sit? How do you, what's your outlook on you know, where we are in terms of how movies are being made? what risks are being taken by filmmakers today, you know, the idea that we're moving from a world where you have to have 3,000 screens to 10 screens in a VOD release. Um, you know, there are obviously a handful of very prominent examples of movies that have been successful using you know, new mm. models of distribution. I, I'm curious to get your perspective My on perspective, this, I'm, I'm the State of the Union. The State of the Union? I'm usually optimistic, but I think we are screwed. We are really screwed. If you think about the business as in past, present, and future, we're in the post-apocalypse of it. We have a situation where the studios... And by the way, anyone who's saying, oh, it's so exciting as all that, doesn't have three kids that they need to feed. We, the major studios are making less films. The films that they are making are heftier budgets. And so if you're not in that, if you're not in the Warner Brothers group, you're not in it. Even if you are, you probably have to wait a few years to make your movie. The independent side is very problematic because a lot of it relies on pre-sales and a lot of it relies on stars or somewhat stars getting attached to your projects, which is very hard to do. And so... If you don't have that, or if you don't have a little bit of equity to make a $1 million horror film, that's not going to happen. And so I think the... And again, by the, by the way, you're going to interview a lot, a, lot of peop, a lot of people that are much more impressive than I am. So I would say as the bottom of all the people that you're interviewing, my you're opinion is... You're not the is, bottom of us. <laughs> <laughs> you're <but my laughs> because you're one of the smartest guys I know. Thank you. I wish uh, you should tell that to my wife. But I really think that the the um, we're the film business is dying. It is really, really dying because the film business as we know it, or just it's dying. as we know it. Because you're you're to get distribution. If you're not a studio, to get to distribution is close to impossible. Even if you get distribution, there the amount of P and A that the distributor has to spend. I mean, it's really if you look at these indie, indie producers, they're not buying a lot of indie distributors. They're not buying a lot of movies either. 
And and yes, there's some huge deals that are made at Sundance, but again, there's there's five thousand films submitted. There's what about fifty films that get in. There's a few deals that are made, so it's not a profitable. It's gone from being a profitable business to being more of an art business in terms of how do you sustain three kids and a mortgage? And I'm about to start do a car lease. Like, how do you do that? I don't know. So I think in the film business, I now treat the film business as not something that feeds my family. On the other hand, the television business is now I, the television business also is not growing. I looked at some numbers now of um, subscribers, but at least that business is creatively. You're seeing a lot of great shows, and you can actually get people working and actually making good money in it. So my outlook on it is the film business is really only for the rich people right now, and the TV business is really where you can make your bread and butter. Sorry that I was rambling. No, that was excellent. That, that, was, uh, that, that was good. Oh, and one last thing which I want to mention. Anybody who says it's so exciting about these digital platforms, uh, I don't mean about yours because you're actually creating content and putting it on, but people that are trying to make television shows or features for the web – they're not at least the deals that my clients have done. There's no money in it. Right now, we were looking at a, uh, and I'm, I'm not going to name specific series, but there are some larger online platforms, companies like Machinima or you know Hulu, that are commissioning and making their own original programming now. Mm-hmm. And it seems that a lot of these larger online platforms are moving towards making. Original programming. No, they, some they are, of which are series, and some of which are films. I totally agree, yeah. but the fees that they pay is is minuscule. Then the question I would have for you is: Are we at the infancy of that, and is that the is that the place where the business will then grow and to the point? I mean, because the outlook may be: Well, yeah, it's shitty right now; people aren't making money. But that's just because the audience is growing for that. And as the audience grows, so too will the fees. And so too will, you know, that just becomes the new the new model. I mean, that's the argument right now, isn't Hope, it? Yeah, hopefully so. I mean, if you look at Netflix, The Atlantic had a great article about Netflix and uh, House of Cards, which is my new favorite show. Although I have to preface that The Wire and Breaking Bad are my all-time favorite shows. But House of, uh, what we see with Netflix is that they're... Uh, pardon me, that is probably my life and it is. What we find with um, Netflix is that the cost of content is constantly growing for them. And if the cost of content is growing, it means at some point the fees are going to go up for the producers, writers, directors, actors. So that's great. And Amazon is making um, TV shows now and features. But I think... It's going to be many, many years before they can sustain families. So, I mean, the big secret is. So, what you're saying is there's a couple of big hitters that are that are that are going to be able to, to to milk that in the short term, and it'll be years before that becomes a sustainable business. Absolutely. I mean, the secret is that the the TV business is really what keeps the agencies afloat and what keeps a lot of people working and living in Hollywood. That's where the real money is. We have at least, I would say at least 10 to 15 years before I think the online platforms start to, in terms of the fees again, 
start to catch up. I mean, it's, I think it's great that you can distribute a film, a feature film of yours online. I mean, Vuguru's doing it great. That's wonderful. But I'm talking from the managerial point of view. When a client says to me, well, can we do it as websites? I was like, yes, but you're not going to make any money for it. There's a great platform to release it, and many people can see it, but there's, there's currently no money in it. Hmm. So I'm sorry that I'm so dour and... No, no, I think it's I've done, I've done a lot of deals. The other thing which I find very interesting is some clients are thinking... Some clients who are not able to break into the studio, studio space all of a sudden say, well, send it to the online companies. But if you look at what the online companies are doing, I mean, they're working... I mean, David Fincher and House of Cards, that's the... The online companies are not looking at content that is not good enough for the studios. They're looking at the same content, so but just with lower fees. The online companies, net, like the Netflixes, of the, like the Netflix and the Vugurus, they're paying the same money, but just on a much smaller selection yeah. of products. Well, you have to discount Netflix because the I mean House of Cards is a different entity with this hundred million dollar thing. Which, by the way, I heard a rumor. I always thought, okay, this was the big thing that was sent to Netflix. Like this was the thing. Okay, Netflix has to prove itself. And they're going to make it. I heard a rumor, which I haven't verified, that really House of Cards was sitting with HBO and Showtime, and they were waiting for it to be made. And the, and again, this is a rumor, so I'm not. Uh, this is what I heard, and they just weren't making it. And then I heard that um, Netflix basically said, "Guys, why don't you come to us? We'll do it." And that's how it happened. So one day I'll verify. Well, sounds sounds like that's um, an accurate. Yeah. Which probably so, would happen. I mean, I'm just guessing because mm-hmm. a lot, of, you know, a lot of the things that I've heard in terms of, you know, the the way they're looking to now continue series that are ongoing mm-hmm. seems like it's the same business model. You either you continue a series that is ongoing, and or pick up a series that is already fully developed. Yes. Versus trying to do it from scratch, mm-hmm. which is a much longer, harder ordeal as. Mm-hmm. You very well know. Yeah. You know what I am excited about is um, I have a client who did a webisode show called Enter the Dojo. And it's about a guy who owns a martial arts school who came up with this um, system of martial arts that has all the strengths of all the martial arts and none of the weaknesses. And he got a gang of good looking people. And he filmed it, and he edited it, and he put it on YouTube, and he got a lot of hits, and that's what's exciting. Is is there a lot of money in it? Not yet, but it gets his name out there, and it shows that he has an immense talent, because he also acts in it, and he writes, and he directs. Doesn't that go back to what you said before about just picking up a camera, making a film, and yes. this just becomes a way of showcasing... Your talent mm-hmm. and getting into the system? Yeah. Well, you guided the conversation right back to the... Yeah, yeah. It's exactly that, yeah. It's exactly that. Well, maybe that's the, the golden, you know, the golden ticket with this distribution platform. It's a, it, you're not going to make any money, but if you want any chance of getting noticed and becoming somebody in this mm-hmm. business at all, you've got to take a chance on yourself and get it out there and market it yourself and... Yeah, that's what you got to do. That's true. So, while there's always, you know, as a, as a manager, I mean, as a producer, this this question that I'm going to ask you next uh, of, of content may make more sense on the producerial side than on the management side. But still, I am curious: what's next for you 
this this company where you work for what's you know what does the next 12 months look like for you the next 12 months looks like we are looking for more things to produce and finance and we're very specific in what we want it can't it has to be an established filmmaker in meaning a filmmaker that if the rule of thumb is if you asked a normal person on the street and you said hey what about so and so and they say oh yeah, yeah I know that guy that's an established filmmaker. So we're looking for projects with established filmmakers that we can produce and finance. And at the same time, we're hoping that Jones's pilot is made and then picked up to series. Because as I said, in TV, that's where the real money is. And um, we're also looking for more clients, writers, directors, actors. How many clients, by the way, does the management side of Affiliate have? We have a lot. I don't know the exact amount because my other, co- I mean, I haven't counted my other colleagues yeah. as clients, but uh, we have a lot. Traditionally, a manager has less than an agent. I mean, I've heard some agents have 70 clients. Um, some have less, but um, managers typically have less because we spend more time with them. So, uh, but I don't know the exact amount. I'd have to count. I have to do a head count for my other <laughs> So I spoke to a manager today who said he's got eight, and I was like, oh, that's impressive. Wow, you've got eight clients that are making money and feeding your kids. That's very impressive. I have more. So, and I have a lot of Canadians, by the way. So I love the Canadians. Canadians are very talented. You guys live in a system where you have taxpayer financing, which I know can sometimes be frustrating, but at the other times it really allows producers to make creative choices without the consequences of losing their houses, which I think is really interesting. And uh, and Canadians are nice people, so I represent a lot of Canadians. It's tough down here right now. I've, you know, a lot of people that we've been speaking with, you know, are frustrated because a lot of work is leaving LA. They're going to other jurisdictions. Problems with unions and being able to work in multiple multiple jurisdictions. Um, so you know, every every system comes with its yeah its pros and cons. Yeah, and you also teach, if I'm not. Mistaken. Yes, I teach at UCLA, and I also teach at the New School. And you were once one of my amazing speakers. Yeah, I remember that night you came at the AFM with Jeff. So yes, I teach. You know, the reason I teach is because I really feel like the the students. Oh, well, just oh, what, what, uh, what, what do you teach? What uh, class? Well, I'm currently teaching at the UCLA Producers Program, which is a graduate course. Uh, I'm teaching one one of the classes. It's called Research and Development Two. And there's one and three as well. And I teach, it's a seminar for grad students where I teach them about what happens in the business and also help them with their thesis, which they need in order to graduate. And in the spring, I teach at UCLA at the undergraduate division. I teach a class about distribution. And then I also teach at UCLA Extension, which is a wonderful part of UCLA where Anyone can enroll in, and I teach um, an introductory level class to the craziness of our business. And what would you say to those people who want to get into the business? I would say that it's a great business to be in because there's really no rules. And if you're an engineer, there are specific rules you need to adhere to. In our business, there really aren't. But it's not as glamorous as everybody thinks. It's a lot of hard work. And if you want to be on the creative side... Unless you're independently wealthy, you're probably going to have to have another job until you get to a point where you're making enough money to to do it full time. Remote Sakai. Yes, sir. 
Thank you for taking the time with us today. I hope I wasn't too dull. I feel like I was not. No, I, you know what? There, there were quite a few kernels of wisdom in there. I, I mean, so. I'm going to pull those out and put them on a poster I or something. So. And I, put them on my desk, you know. <laughs> and I hope, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be too dour or down, but I mean, we are not, I mean, we're going through a tough phase. I mean, they just said that the jobless rate in the United States is going down, so maybe that's the silver lining of all of this, but um, I'm worried for my three kids. Well, let business pick up in the next year. Let let let, let the Joneses be picked up. Let, Amen. Let us all feed good our families. Amen. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me.